Welcome to the American Maritime Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Carpenter, Vice President of the American Maritime Partnership. Today, we are very happy to be joined by Mike Roberts. Mike recently retired from Crowley Maritime and has joined the think tank world with positions with Hudson Institute and the Navy League's new Center for Maritime Strategy. Mike is also the immediate past president of the American Maritime Partnership and has hosted several episodes of this podcast. So Mike, we're very happy to have you taking your turn in the guest seat today. Jennifer, it's great to be here with you and and have a chance to chat with you uh, this afternoon. Really looking forward to it. Mike, you had a distinguished career with Crowley, and you've started a really exciting new chapter with your think tank work with Hudson Institute and the Navy League's new Center for Maritime Strategy. Tell us a little bit about what you're hoping to accomplish in this new career. Well, I had a great uh, run with Crowley over 30 years uh, with the company. It's a great company. Uh, I felt very fortunate uh, and was very grateful to, to have that time. Um, I got to a point where uh, I felt like uh, I wanted, it, it, it's a very demanding uh, job, very, very intense work, uh, and I felt like I wanted to have a little more control over my headspace, so to speak, and, uh, and I, I didn't care any less about the issues that we were working on or the company, uh, but I felt like I'd have a, a chance to do it in a little bit different format. So I'm continuing to do some work for Crowley and then, and then with Hudson uh, Institute, which is a great, uh, great group of experts, uh, particularly in the space we'll talk about today, and the Navy League also, a, a really great opportunity there. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, that's really, that's really exciting. So I remember from your AMP days, I learned a lot from you about China and its expansion of its geopolitical dominance in the maritime space. Can you talk a little bit about how maritime fits into China's overall strategy? Sure. Uh, we spent a lot of time on China. Some would say I got fairly obsessed with it. Um, uh, but it, 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 to, to me, it was a striking uh, study talking to a number of experts uh, uh, on China and on the maritime industry, Admiral Stavridis, Michael Pillsbury, Robert O'Brien, really some really great people um, who, who know this space quite well. And, and what struck me about those conversations was uh, a the fact that uh, uh, China is uh, a, a, a is or is fast becoming a great power, uh, a competitor with the United States. Uh, that's their uh, intention. Uh, they are economically uh, about the same as we are at a national level. Militarily, they are uh, have uh, vast and growing capabilities. Their navy is larger than the American navy. Um, and they have uh, deep and strategic engagements uh, internationally around the globe. And, and so they, they have that intention. Second point is uh, the, the realization, I believe, that uh, uh, they're not interested in sort of joining the, uh, the uh, Western uh, approach to uh, a world order. They're interested in much more in a different approach, and I'll say an authoritarian approach, one that, that's not uh, as free as we have enjoyed for the last many decades. Uh, and one that would not uh, be in America's best interest. So we have, I think, uh, an important, uh, uh, a very important uh, role to play in terms of uh, making sure China doesn't succeed in, in those ambitions. And then the third thing is that the maritime industry and all its facets from, you know, shipping and shipbuilding and fishing and, and the maritime militia and, and the Navy and the Coast Guard, all of those are a very important aspect of, of China's uh, overall geopolitical strategy. And, uh, and we uh, didn't really realize that. Uh, and I certainly didn't really realize that until we had some of these conversations. So, 
So how does U.S. policy need to change? Do we need a new American maritime policy to respond to what China is doing in that space? We need to take a close look at what our policy is. And, I, and I'm speaking now specifically in the international markets. We have a, a strong American domestic market. The Jones Act assures that some of, the, some of the disadvantages that American maritime faces in the international markets in terms of regulatory requirements and taxes and the lack of an overall national strategy all of those things have left us uh, really behind in international shipping and shipbuilding industry. Those problems don't exist in our domestic industry because of the Jones Act. So when we need to look at this, uh, I think we look at our strategy and our maritime policy, uh, the focus should be on what, what vulnerabilities do we have uh, as a result of China's uh, ascendance? What do we need to do to to help from a maritime policy perspective, international maritime policy perspective? How do we... Um, uh, improve the likelihood that China will not succeed in their overall ambitions. Uh, and, and, and so I don't have answers to those issues. I think it's, it's something we haven't thought about seriously for, for many, many decades. Um, but we're anxious to start digging into it. Which you can do in your new role. Exactly, exactly. And we've got some really great partners at, at both Hudson and, and, the, and the Navy League to, to work on these issues. Looking forward to it. You've added a lot to my reading list over the last few years, so I'm going to stand by for some more uh, good food for thought. So let's kind of stay on geopolitics for a little bit. What lessons do you take from the Russian invasion of Ukraine for American maritime policy? Well, it's very interesting. Two things. One is is that uh, uh, great power competition, if Russia is a great power, and they're, they're not at this point uh, at the same level, uh, they're not at the same level of threat as China, except for their nuclear capabilities. But their um, invasion of Ukraine, unprovoked, um, shows that uh, authoritarian regimes are, are not to be taken for granted, that their, their behavior uh, can turn uh, horribly bad. Uh, uh, and, and, and so we need, to, we need to be fully prepared to deter, to respond, and, and thereby deter such behaviors. The second thing I would say is that uh, the Ukrainians' ability to uh, turn back the Russians uh, and, and by attacking their logistic supply chain uh, on the ground in Ukraine um, has been critical, and it's been well discussed in the media. Um, uh, and, and, and so that's a, that's a land-based invasion, and so the maritime component of it is not central, although there is certainly the Black Sea issues and, and so on. Uh, but uh, if you then sort of translate that into an activation, a military activation involving China, it would all be maritime. There would be nothing. You know, we can't drive across. We, we can drive across the border our javelins and other weapons uh, in, in the context of, of helping Ukraine defend itself. We couldn't do that in, a, in a, an activation involving um, uh, aggression by China, should that hopefully never happen. But if it did happen, we need to, we need to have a maritime logistics capability uh, to match that challenge and thereby deter uh, that from happening. Absolutely. We're certainly seeing plenty to demonstrate that supply chains, military supply chains and logistics matter. Absolutely. They, they, there's a lot of conversation about that on the media, and um, uh, and we haven't paid the kind of attention that we need to pay uh, to, to those issues. So that's part of what we'll be doing. Interesting stuff. So in the immediate aftermath of the Russian invasion, and then especially after the ban on the importation of Russian energy products was announced, we heard a few, more than a few, opportunistic calls to waive the Jones Act. 
What do you say to that? Well, you know, opportunistic is a, is a key word there. Uh, it, it, there are, uh, let me sort of back up and, and say I, I believe that the Jones Act debate at, at, a, at a gut level is over. It's been over for a long time. Uh, it was an interesting conversation to have in the immediate post-Cold War era uh, where we sort of were going to have a conversation about how far we would sort of go toward a th free trade theology. We would go so far as to allow foreign workers into our own, physically into our own markets and take work away from American mariners. And we decided then the answer is no. Now, it wasn't unanimous. There are still those who have economic reasons and, and I think, ill-informed ideology uh, that uh, they, they still want to talk about this. But, um, uh, but I think, by and large, that, that, that conversation is over. Uh, and where were we going with this question? Um, can you repeat the question again? Yeah, so folks calling for Jones Act waivers, particularly after the ban on Russian right. energy products. So, so uh, the, 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 the requests or the, the claims for Jones Act waivers um, had to do both with, you know, the impact of, of the Russian, of boycotting Russian petroleum products and the release of S SPR, which were not directly related, but uh, oil from the SPR, million barrels a day. Um, uh, both of those things uh, set off discussions about whether or not there's, there really domestic supply chains were sufficient or international supply chains. It changes the mix of energy supply in this country, so it's appropriate to have a conversation about how we're going to adjust to that. Um, uh, in the case of Russian oil imports, the, the, the volume is so small it really didn't have an impact. Uh, so there's really no need for any really a discussion about that. The possible exception was in Hawaii where a refinery there uh, uh, does obtain, has obtained some of its petroleum crude over the years from Russia. Uh, they also get a fair amount of their crude from Alaska uh, on Jones Act tankers uh, on a regular basis. That's been going. That can be ramped up. Uh, other uh, 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 sourcing of American crude oil can be uh, obtained to, to sort of fill in that supply, and then they can get supply from anywhere else in the world. So there really isn't a, a problem there. With respect to SPR drawdown, there's a lot of, uh, of uh, demand for uh, tanker service. Um, again, w w there's plenty of, of American ships available to do that work, and that's because we, we uh, really scaled up our uh, tanker fleet uh, during the, uh, the fracking revolution in the mid-teens, and, and we built 30 new American tankers over the course of three years. And then the demand uh, went down when they, they um, uh, released the crude oil export ban, and so there's been a lot of excess capacity in the market, which is now available to, to respond on the SPR side of things. You're exactly right. I, I think there's a contingent out there that uh, whenever something happens in the world, it's an opportunity to call for a Jones Act waiver. It is. <laughs> it's unfortunate. And speaking of that, LNG is another commodity that is sometimes cited by Jones Act critics as a, a thing that should give rise to a Jones Act waiver. Can you talk a little bit about LNG in the U.S. and how the Jones Act does or does not have anything to do with it? Sure. Virtually all uh, natural gas is supplied in dry form by pipeline in the, in the domestic United States. Uh, uh, and and uh, the only areas where there, we've seen uh, uh, concerns or, or claims made with respect to the Jones Act and liquefied natural gas is in, in the new Northeast, where uh, the uh, capacity of the, of the gas pipelines has not been expanded to meet requirements, especially during cold snaps in the winter. 
And, and so to respond to those circumstances, um, uh, LNG has been imported uh, on uh, you know three to five cargoes a year when the, in particularly bad winters uh, that, that the, the cargoes have come from Trinidad, um, uh, which is perfectly logical, logical from an uh, international trading standpoint. I think one cargo may have originated in Russia, so that gives a talking point to the Anti-Jones Act crowd, but one out of dozens uh, over the course of decades. Uh, and that was that was an opportunistic uh, sailing. Similarly, in Puerto Rico, which has a regular uh, power plant receiving uh, LNG uh, over the past 20 years, they receive about one cargo every other week. Uh, and that is, again, from Trinidad. It's local. It's um, uh, it's uh, it, it makes abundant sense. Again, I think one cargo in the last 20 years. Um, has come from Russia or may have originated in Russia. Again, it was a repositioning voyage or some other reason uh, why they, they chose that. But So when you see LNG and Russia, uh, it's nonsense. Uh, it's, uh, it's a whopper. <laughs> so speaking of whoppers, let's talk about those because, you know, there definitely are some uh, misconceptions, talking points, whoppers, if you will, right. uh, that get repeated by the anti-Jones Act crowd from time to time. In your past experience as president of AMP, you've been, you've been in the seat many times where you've been the point person to respond to those. So let's, let's take on a few. Um, sometimes, you mentioned World War II earlier, critics will look at the U.S. fleet post-World War II and they'll say, we don't have as many American vessels now as we did then. And that shows that the Jones Act isn't working. What would you say to that? Uh, there's a whole lot to unpack there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's it's hard to get at. The Jones Act is intended to provide a level playing field for American competitors in the in the maritime space to compete with each other in domestic markets, and and it is not intended uh, to create an internationally competitive and large fleet uh, of American. Uh, built ships and American mariners. Uh, that gets into the international policy issues that we need to talk about. In the domestic market, you'll see changes uh, in, in, over time in, the, in, in market demands. Markets are created, markets dry up, uh, and, and, uh, and it's incumbent upon uh, uh, American maritime companies to compete for those markets and try and keep them going where they can and, and, um, uh, and, and, and survive in competitive markets when, uh, when they're challenged. So that drives innovation. It drives investment. It, 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 and that, that, that competition has resulted in, many, in, in a much more efficient fleet, an innovative fleet. Our tanker fleet, as I mentioned, I think is about half, on average, about half the age of the international tanker fleet. It's new. It's modern. It's, it's performance uh, standards under, under, are globally uh, competitive. Um, so, so, uh, and if, and if you don't make that investment and, and that innovation, you go out of business. So one quick example, if I may, the, the, uh, uh, the container shipping service between, um, uh, the mainland and, and, uh, Puerto Rico, uh, three years ago, four years ago, Crowley operated eight vessels in that market, um, and made a very substantial investment in new vessels, two, and two new vessels. Uh, are able to carry more cargo than those eight vessels did before, and with fewer mariners employed overall. That's and 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 customers get much better service. So that's the kind of innovation uh, that competition in the in those markets bring. 
Um, and uh, and the so to look at the number of ship hulls and the number of mariners is is a is a whopper. It's a non it's a, a non sequitur. Absolutely. And you, it sounds to me like in answering that question, you've really dismantled another whopper out there or misconception. And the question sometimes goes, aren't we stifling competition innovation by not letting foreign vessels into the domestic trade? Clearly, the answer to that is no. It, 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 it is not. All it is is all the Jones Act does is insist that uh, American um, competitors compete on a level playing field in our domestic markets. And, uh, and that has led to a really strong domestic American maritime industry. And, and as large as the domestic industry is, and it is very large, I mean, 650,000 jobs and $150 billion in, in uh, 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 revenue the, uh, or economic output, the, the, um, uh, it, it is still dwarfed by the international uh, shipping uh, industry. Um, uh, but, they, but that keeps us in the game. It, keep, it gives us a critical mass of Americans who know how to build and operate ships um, uh, to protect our homeland security and to, uh, so we have something to scale up if we ever need to. And that's the question now. Do we have to, do we have to start thinking about how to scale up in response to the current uh, uh, challenges, geopolitical challenges we have? Absolutely. Faith in the news media has been challenged, making it even harder to get stories told. The Friday Reporter podcast was created to help audiences better understand the media by hosting journalists who will answer the questions to which we need answers. Join me every Friday to hear more. You know, sometimes folks peddle whoppers about the Jones Act because they've got an agenda that they're pursuing. Sometimes there are misconception and folks are just confused. Uh, so what would you kind of put on your uh, on your list of misconceptions, areas where a little education is needed? Well, I, I think the the um, uh, the again, getting back to the non-contiguous domestic trades, yeah. Hawaii, Puerto Rico, Alaska, um, there's a conception there, and it's, it, it's intuitive to some extent, uh, that uh, prices are higher in those locations because the ships serving those lo locations are more expensive because they're American. Uh, the, the ships themselves and the mariners are more expensive than they could otherwise be if, if, uh, if they could use foreign vessels. The, now, we've done a lot of work in this area, and we've actually done podcast discussions of the economics of that, and I won't repeat that, but I'd, I'd summarize that by saying uh, that the, the, the portion of the overall cost of a maritime logistics supply chain that's attributable to the ship is very, very small. You look at fuel, you look at port costs, trucking, everything that goes into delivering an item to the shelf in Puerto Rico or Hawaii or Alaska. Um, the ship uh, or the part of the ship that's uh, affected by the Jones Act is maybe 3%. Let's just put a number on it. And then that's offset by, by efficiency gains from customizing those vessels and those services to those markets. So, so really, uh, the, the number is probably zero or less in terms of the, of the value of that. Now, there's a couple of things to add uh, in, in, in that really reinforces, I think, that message. One is it, when you look at the supply chain crisis that we have right now, the pandemic-induced supply chain crisis, where you have ships held up off of, off of uh, uh, our coast for, for weeks at a time, um, uh, there was a recent IMF uh, report by economists from the IMF that said the average uh, 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 increase in, in freight rates internationally and in container freight rates is about 350 percent. 
Now, I think it may be higher than that, but, but, they, but certainly anecdotally I've heard of much, much higher increases. But three and a half times, if it was you know, $3,000 two and a half years ago, it's over $10,000 today to move that box from point A to point. And the service is horrible. Um, you don't have that in domestic markets. You don't have that at all in domestic markets. The service is absolutely the same as it was, has, hasn't changed. And thanks to our essential worker mariners who've kept that going. Um, and, 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 and the rates have been stable. They may have gone up 1% or 2 or 5%, whatever, but they've not gone up anywhere like that. They may have gone down. I don't know. But I know they've been stable relative to that. Um, so, so you have that. And then you think about those numbers. Uh, now, the, these economists went on to say that 350% increase in freight rates has, translates into a, an increase in general inflation of 1.5%. So that, you know, our, our, our concerns about 8% inflation, 1.5% of that might be attributable to those international shipping freight rates. 350 to 1.5, 350% increase. So if you say the cost of a ship in, in, the, in the Jones Act markets would be 3%, is 3% higher. So, or say 3.5, so the math works out if, if you're following me here. Um, so that's 1 100th of 350%. So it would be 1 100th of 1.5%, or 0. 0.00015. Uh, in terms of the uh, of, of the uh, impact on those domestic markets, so the notion that because of the Jones Act prices are higher, the people in Puerto Rico or the people in in uh, Hawaii pay more is simply not true. It, it is simply not true. This this is decimal dust, and again, I think it's offset by efficiency gains anyway. So anyway, I think that's one of the big whoppers that that uh, it, and it gets repeated and repeated and repeated and. Um, we, you know, we've got to stop trafficking in slogans. We've got to get to the, you know, the objective truth about this, and that's the objective truth about these markets. They are not, they are well served by having American ships and American mariners on a regular, regular route serving those markets. Yeah, and we've certainly seen, you know, over the last couple of years, just tangible evidence of that. I think sometimes, Mike, in the past, you know, when we talked about reliable, cost-effective services, people said, well, wait, the idea we could have empty shelves? Who, when could we ever have empty mm -hmm. shelves? Well, now we know. Yeah. We could have empty shelves. It, exactly. We could have skyrocketing prices, but we don't have that in markets served by Jones Act vessels. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Very reliable, very stable services. And, uh, uh, and if ever there was a time the Jones Act proved its worth from an economic standpoint, uh, now is it. And also, uh, again, from a, a national security standpoint, I think the, uh, the evidence is overwhelming that uh, we need to have Americans who know how to build and operate ships and, and need to f figure out how to, how to uh, optimize that and maximize uh, those capabilities. Absolutely, because it's not theoretical that it's bad things could happen in the world exactly. and we might have a national security imperative. Well said. Jennifer, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> so a thought experiment, what, what would a United States without the Jones Act look like? Uh, well, we wouldn't have a, a commercial shipbuilding industry. It would be that, uh, I think the, 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 um, the, um, the reality is we would be, um, we can't force Americans with American Occupational Safety and Health Act rules and, you know, U.S. taxes and U.S. labor rights and all of that stuff, which, which are passed in the infinite wisdom of, of our Congress and protect workers uh, and, 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 and so on. Uh, you can't 
say, okay, now go forth, and, and the lack of an overall strategy. You can't say to the U.S. shipbuilding industry, now go forth and compete internationally. So if you allowed foreign-built ships into our domestic markets, that would end that would also, uh, you know, destroy the investment that that uh, shipping companies have made, t- you know, tens of billions of dollars in tankers and container ships and so on. Uh, that investment would be destroyed also if you did away with the Jones Act. Uh, from a mariner perspective, again, it, it's a small uh, portion of the overall cost of of uh, of the of logistic service. But if you're in that market, if you're competing to provide shipping services, you can't afford to have a three or five percent. Um, uh, cost disadvantage over your customers. So unfortunately, that would that would impact uh, U.S. mariners also. So it would it would uh, and then and I think I'm very confident that the reliability of services would suffer also because you know there there would be different priorities um, that the international carriers would have. So there, there would not be a pretty picture. I don't like that thought experiment. I don't like it either. <laughs> Let's move off of that on to whatever you want to talk about. So I always learn from listening to you, Mike. And before we close out the podcast, I really just kind of want to give you an opportunity to uh, go a little deeper on anything you'd like or anything that we've not covered that you think is important to keep in mind as we talk about you know, the future of American maritime and how we ensure that Maritime continues to be able to provide for this country when it comes to security, when it comes to economy, when it comes to supply chain reliability. Well, I think um, I think uh, being really focusing on I think AMP does a great job of looking at at uh, uh, looking beyond the slogans. Um, you know, we their slogans are important. I, you know, I understand how the sort of the political class works, and that's but I, if you're just trafficking in slogans, we're not getting anywhere. So we need to understand the facts, and I think AMP does a really good job. The, the coalition that is AMP has the facts and, and, and can explain the facts um, uh, sometimes quite well. <laughs> and, and I think that's important. Uh, that's, that's just so important to, to, to you know, just dispel the nonsense that comes out. Um, and, and, and again, ultimately, you want, we want to get beyond that. We want to be able to really play office, offense in terms of uh, how do we expand our, in my opinion, how do we expand our international uh, capabilities uh, in, in the maritime space? So those are a couple of thoughts. Good stuff. Mike, you are welcome to come back anytime and not only be a guest, but take your turn back in the host <laughs> chair if you miss it. Uh, Thank you. No, that it's is a pleasure. It has always been fun. Yep. Um, that's it for this episode of American Maritime Podcast. We very much appreciate you tuning in. We hope that you will share it with others who are interested in a strong American maritime industry to support our country. I'm Jennifer Carpenter, signing off. Thank you.